Good morning, dear saints, blessed epiphany, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Wednesday, February 7th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today, we are now taking up chapter 2 in Deuteronomy, which recounts the Israelites' lengthy journey around the territory of Edom as commanded by God, marking a period of wandering in the wilderness. This chapter reflects on the Israelites' encounters with various peoples, including the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites, and emphasizing God's instructions not to provoke these groups into conflict, since he had granted them their own lands. It also details the defeat of the Amorites under King Sihon of Heshbon, highlighting this victory as a sign of God's power and favor toward the Israelites, granting them possession of the conquered territories. Whether it's over the air, online at kfuo.org, or as a podcast, I'm glad you're here. You're the reason that we're here. So settle in and open your hearts and your minds as we begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So visit them online at lhfmissions.org. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can email me, pastorboo at gmail.com, find me on Facebook, or call in 1-800-730-2727. Joining us this morning, it's the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, Pastor Mullet. Good morning. Good to be back with you today. Yeah, it's nice to have you on. I'm excited to uh, get into Deuteronomy with you. Um, how are things been going for you? Pretty good? Yeah, yeah, we're doing very well. We had a, well, I remember the last time I was on, we were both of us in the middle of a very cold spell, and we had a couple weeks out here where it was trying to be sunny and up in the 50s most days, and now we're back to 30s and fog and rain. So it feels a little bit more like winter again. Well, we're actually pretty warm here considering, so I've been enjoying it, but glad to have you back. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just go ahead and pray and then dive right into the text? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as through the writing of Moses, you recounted your victory over so many tribes and nations as you led your chosen people, Israel, unto the promised land. So open our hearts and minds by the Spirit that we might, with joy, recount that same victory and so find there our own victory that we have in Christ over sin, death, and the grave, that he might welcome us likewise into the promised land of his kingdom, which has no end. All this we ask in his most holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, you want to lay the foundation for folks. You know, we've only been through one chapter so far. So, you know, Moses is relating all of these things to a new generation. What is it that he's relating to them? And why are they a new generation? I guess I should say. Yeah, as you said in the little introduction of the program a couple minutes ago, one of the most important things to remember, I think, about Deuteronomy is if you if you take it up just by itself, it can be a little confusing what's being talked about and what's going on. But what happens, of course, that we learn through the book of Exodus and Numbers, we got Leviticus in the middle, but Leviticus is not so much telling a story um, the way that Exodus and Numbers are. As you go through Exodus and Numbers, we see the people of Israel after the crossing of the Red Sea, they've been led up out of Egypt, and they come to the brink of the promised land. And because of their rebellion, they're turned away and they must wander in the wilderness 
for uh, what amounts to approximately 38 more years, making the total of 40 that we're so familiar with. And what Moses is now doing to this new generation, because of that extra 38 years and part of the discipline there in God turning them away was nobody who is currently here is going to see the promised land. It's going to be the following generation. It's going to be all their kids that get to inherit the promised land and not even Moses. It's going to be Joshua who finally leads them across the Jordan River. So what we're doing now in these opening chapters of Deuteronomy is this is kind of a a series of farewell sermons, if you will, from Moses uh, to the people who are now on the brink again. They're about to inherit the promised land. And what Moses, I think, is doing is recounting, and most of it in Deuteronomy is recounting um, the events of the book of Numbers, that reminding these people where they came from, the hardships they endured, and yet the grace that God showed to them in delivering military victory in some instances, in calling them back out of their rebellion, in continuing to be God the Father to them, even though they were rebellious children, and his grace in even though their parents and Moses himself won't get to inherit Canaan in the flesh, still, by God's grace, his chosen people will inherit the promised land. And we can find there, of course, uh, a promise for us as well that you know we're not we're not married to an earthly kingdom or a chunk of land. Um, what we see foreshadowed here in these victories is is a victory that we likewise enjoy as we inherit the promised land that is not a piece of land on this earth, but is indeed the kingdom that Jesus has prepared for us. Well, let's get in because Deuteronomy 2 and 3 details Israel's departure from Kadesh Barnea, their journey through the Transjordan, and then their conquest and settlement of part of the Transjordan. Transjordan meaning, you know, on the wrong side, the other side of the Jordan. Uh, And so we'll talk about this first part of Moses' speech now. Let's let's read, and I'll just stop wherever the ESV wants me to stop, which is, uh, looks like verse 8. Here we go. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as Yahweh told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then Yahweh said to me, You have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For Yahweh your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years Yahweh your God has been with you, you have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Elath and Ezion Geber. Okay, so take us through this, brother. (laughs) We're going to come up with lots of fun names to talk about, aren't we? Um, Right, so what we're... What we're doing here, um, that then we turned, um, I think invites us to just very briefly remember the last verse of Deuteronomy 1, which is, they remained at Kadesh many days. Uh, And this is the part where the precise timeline 
whether in numbers, uh, which is, again, what we're basically talking about here is the book of numbers, uh, or here in Deuteronomy, it's hard to nail down precisely how long they stayed in some of these places. Um, we, we don't know precisely how long they were at Kadesh, how many days the many days actually is. But we know now that they're turning and going in the direction of the Red Sea, back in the general south southwest direction from where they were. And they went around Mount Seir, um, which is, again, as we learn in a couple more verses, the land of the people of Esau. So it, elsewhere in the Old Testament, that would be the Edomites um, or the land of Edom or the kingdom of Edom. Um, that's all descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. Uh, that's where they're going. And yet, do not contend with them. I will not give you any of their land. And this is, this is really such a remarkable thing that we are going to see here in this section and the next couple of sections. Um, when they're told to turn and go northward now, um, they're passing through these places that in so many other passages of the Old Testament, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, we read those names. And I think for the most part, we kind of dismiss them along with it, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so many of these other groups of people that are just, well, they're not the Israelites. Um, and yet, who are the Edomites? They're the offspring of Esau. They are, in fact, offspring of Abraham. Uh, and so likewise, when we, when we get to the Moabites and the Ammonites, there are family connections here that we really, I think, do well to pause and kind of ponder just how remarkable it is that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Um, it says offspring of Abraham will have their inheritance, and they do. It's not Canaan. It's not the promised land, but God is still looking out for these people. You know, and frankly, as the generations go on, the people that we would consider to be Gentiles, and for the most part, pagans, uh, unbelievers for the most part, and yet God continues to keep his promise to them uh, in part because it's a promise that he keeps to them. And that's what God does. Um, but Luther notes too, uh, when he's talking about uh, Deuteronomy, that, that by preserving them, God is also giving them an opportunity for repentance. And so we see this just remarkable picture in this big long list of names that are kind of hard to pronounce and they don't show up in the lectionary. So we're usually kind of unfamiliar with them, which is fine. Uh, but it's so good to dig in a little bit and see who these people actually are and what's actually going on. God is preserving them, giving an opportunity for repentance and including them in his promises. Even in the Old Testament, Jew and Gentile alike are included in God's great plan of salvation. And that's what we begin to see unfolding here. The only thing that brings to my mind, though, and I guess it really does beg asking, is what about the people that they're about to dispossess from their land? Yeah, so it's it's hard to um, oh, how do I want to say this? Um, it's hard to see if there is a particular pattern in terms of well, aren't they also related, and how distantly are they related, and things like that. Um, but we we kind of see both and, don't we? As you as you just noted, right? We have some nations and some lands that are preserved for a time and some that are given into the Israelites' hands. Um, and, and I think what we see there for us is an illustration 
of both, that there is preservation, but so also discipline and destruction, um, that, that God and his plan of salvation cut both ways. Um, that doesn't sound like a particularly satisfying answer, even to my ears. Um, but, but when we, when we kind of dig into this to remember that, you know, particularly the, uh, the Ammonites are the ones that are, uh, you know, spoiler alert. Um, that's, that's what's about to happen. Um, but when we, when we get to that point to remember that even though the Ammonites are likewise offspring of at least a relative of Abraham, um, that that the great many sins that they've committed um, do deserve punishment and destruction, as do the sins of the Edomites, as do the sins of the Moabites, and as do the sins of the Israelites. Um, we so often get caught up on this question of why do bad things happen to good people? And we usually overlook this important reminder that according to sinfulness, there is no such thing as good people. Um, that, that we deserve only temporal and eternal punishment and that any preservation on God's part is in grace, that he would be just, that it would be totally fair according to his own law to totally wipe everybody out, um, but rather to grab onto God's grace and to find in those Edomites, you know, Esau was the firstborn, but he didn't turn out to be the son of the promise and yet God preserved him, right? Moab, one of the offspring of Lot, uh, Ammon, another one from, from Lot, not from Abraham, uh, that, you know, none of those are sons of the promise. And yet for their time in their place, God in his grace allowed them to live and even to prosper in some of these kingdoms to give them, as Luther said, and I think Luther spot on to give them that opportunity for repentance as the Israelites passed through those places, um, that opportunity would be given. And so in the destruction of the Ammonites, um, you know, uh, we read, for example, in Hebrews 12, that, you know, chastisement from God, discipline from God is used to bring people to repentance and faith as well. Oh, absolutely. And the sovereignty of God must always be kept in mind here. And I think that's challenging uh, even for us today as we reflect that, you know, whatever God does is good because he's God. And and we, we often want to try to judge God's behavior, but we're not in a position to even know all the information, frankly. But let's uh, let's keep on going. I stopped in the middle of verse eight. We're going to keep on going. And we turned and we went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And Yahweh said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites lived also in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which Yahweh gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the books, brook Zered. And the time came, or sorry, the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as Yahweh had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of Yahweh was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So yeah, we definitely see opportunities for repentance, God exercising his judgment. We see all kinds of things going on here. 
Yeah, there's a couple of fun little, it's going to happen again in the next little portion of verses as well, where there's little, these little parenthetical references from Moses. Um, the parentheses obviously aren't written into the Hebrew, but you do kind of get that sense and they're here for us in the English. Um, I didn't chase down a whole bunch of English translations to see whether they're across the board, but I imagine they are. And it's and it's kind of clear that Moses is kind of teaching in the midst of this, that his his sermons, if you will, to the people of Israel, as they're now on the cusp, on the threshold, really, of inheriting the promised land, um, this new generation, that as he's telling them the stories that many of them would have been too young to remember as the, as kind of the outset of this journey through the wilderness here, that he's kind of trying to fill in that backstory a little bit and kind of teach them, okay, now, when I say these people, I'm talking about this and this and this, and they used to live here. And that's why such and such is called by this name. And it's, it's, it's kind of neat, I think, little stuff like this, that historically for us, particularly as Christians in the Western Hemisphere, um, we don't really pay much attention to these places. Many of these places are no longer called by these names, but we do exactly the same thing when we tell stories to our children and grandchildren. We do exactly the same thing. Well, that house used to be owned by this family, and they had that business downtown, and that's why that used to be called that, and that's why I still call it that sometimes, because that's who used to own it. And then they moved to this other place. And so we do this all the time to help the following generations fill in that backstory and get a better sense of why things are the way they are. I think more so for us looking backwards into Deuteronomy to see that there is, I mean, to remember that these are human beings, that these are actually people, that Moses is actually trying to impart this wisdom, this knowledge, this story of who these Israelites are and teach them, teach these things to this next generation so that, so that the tradition can continue, if, if you will. Um, so as they pass, oh, I guess I'd be remiss if I if I skipped over the people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Um, yeah, that's what I was getting ready to press you on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the tall people, right, the tall people. Um, so this is one of those places, and in, um, let me think here, in uh, numbers and then looking way back, this is often connected likewise to the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6 um, because of this idea that they're taller people. It, it's hard to know exactly what that means. This comes up. Um, this idea of, of tall people or even giant people comes up when the spies are sent to spy out the land of Canaan uh, and a few other places that we see this reference to really tall people. It's hard to know historically exactly what's going on there. Uh, and lots of different interpretations have been given. Does it actually mean physical tallness or is it about their reputation or is it about their their tyranny and their um, kind of their anger or aggressiveness or, or strength? Uh, or things like that. Um, but here, it seems pretty clear that it's physical tallness. And I just, I just kind of pondered for a moment, you know, and I, it, this is not obviously any sort of statement of, of racial denigration or anything like that. But to kind of keep in mind, historically, most of the folks in that region of the world, in what we now call the Middle East, are physically shorter than most people in now that are descendants of folks from Europe or from the Americas tend to be a little bit taller. And I think then that's why they kind of stick out 
that if, if most everybody's a little bit shorter than your average American, so to speak, that the average Middle Eastern man or woman is going to be a little bit smaller by comparison. Um, these folks who might not actually be that tall by our standards, to them, uh, it's a pretty remarkable, it stands out. That's how you recognize them. Uh, so it becomes kind of one of the calling cards of that group of people. Um, was, I've heard yeah, Americans ahead, today um, explain that they feel that same sense, say, when they go to Asia, you know, and they, they're like a good foot taller than a lot of the folks there. And so, yeah, there are differences in people and structures and that sort of thing. It also mentions, though, um, the Rephaim. You know, Rephaim is a Hebrew term. It sometimes refers to like the spirits of the dead. We get that in Isaiah, Rephaim, when um, when he talks about it. But then it seems like the Rephaim or the Rephites um, are mentioned here as inhabiting a place. So maybe they're being conflated with the with the, these giant clans or whatever you want to call them. And that could be, you know, that's another neat thing that you can do with these names is most of these names do show up elsewhere in the Old Testament. Um, you know, even, I mean, by the very name of the book, Deuteronomy, right? Deutero, second, and Namas law. It's the second giving of the Ten Commandments as Moses is recounting this story to the people of Israel. As he's telling this again, it is kind of a second happening of it. Uh, once it actually happened, and now he's telling it again as 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 if it happened twice. When we chase down those references, like look where else we have Rephaim, as Pastor Boo just mentioned, look where else that word shows up. Look where else the Moabites are and what they're affiliated with. Look at the Emim, right? And of course, talk to your pastor and dig in a little bit too. Most of these names are Hebrew words. They're not just names of people and places. They actually have a meaning in Hebrew. So the Emim, for example, um, is a, you know, the Hebrew word kind of hiding in there is about uh, fright or fear. Um, and so I think the other thing we can do here when you make the connection to, you know, the spirits of the dead, uh, if in fact that's what Moses is trying to do here, is a little bit artistic as well, that people begin to name each other and refer to each other in certain ways based on those reputations, right? Um, like the Anakim apparently being tall. Now, the Anakim are also counted as Rephaim. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped over one. Um, but right. But the Moabites call them Emmy. I mean, we kind of pull all those things together. They're tall. They might have something to do with the spirits of the dead, which sounds kind of, you know, pagan. Uh, and it and it and they're. I mean, they're frightening, they're frightful, that we can kind of pull all that together, too, in kind of an artistic way that Moses, as he's re recounting this story, is like, these people were scary. There was something there that, you know, whether it was actual military power with the size of these people or the way that they lived that was frightening or even false belief as they interacted with the spirits of the dead, God delivered us from all of those things, all those different aspects that kind of threatened as we wandered through the wilderness to, to, to overwhelm us or to lead us astray. God protected us from all of that stuff. So I think we can take both layers there, that these probably are actual people in actual places, um, but maybe over time, their names become associated in such a way that that Moses can kind of string them together and also make a homiletical point as well. Yeah, I think grounding it in history is, you know, the main purpose, right? So he's teaching the young generation with these parenthetical statements, as you mentioned. But then also, yeah, absolutely saying, look, no matter how big and scary they might be, look how the Lord provided for them 
And and that's going to be important as they're getting ready to cross over and meet their own giant, scary people. You know, we even think about the spies who came back and said the same thing, right? They're like Anakim in there. So to point to this and say, look, I've already provided for them. I'm going to provide for you makes yeah homiletical sense. Yeah. And this, um, it, when we get into then 13, uh, verse 13, I should say, the brook Zered, that's still there. Um, and this helps us put it on a map, I think, a little bit and get a better sense of where things actually are. Uh, when they go over the brook Zered, that is still the name, at least in some languages, of the stream that comes um, into um, that comes into the southern end of what in the Bible is usually called the Salt Sea. We call it the Dead Sea now. Um, so that is still that's where we're at. We're at the southern end of what we now call the Dead Sea. And as we cross over that uh, that stream, now that's helping us geographically move from southwest to slightly northeast. So we're going to be moving up now up along the Dead Sea, up along the Jordan, and so on. Um, and we're going to come to the Jabbok here in a little while. And, and those sorts of things help us put this on a map and remember, again, that it did actually historically happen. So as we cross the Zered, that is when we're now crossing into the land of the Moabites proper, is on the what would be the northeastern side of the brook Zered and on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, if you you know, care to chase all that down on a map. Um, and then we get, right, that reminder here in the latter portion of what you just read. The time from Kadesh Barnea until crossing the Brooks of Red into the land of the Moabites was 38 years. Why 38 years? It was that long until the entire generation had perished from the camp. It took that, you know, for everybody in that first generation of Red Sea crossers, to die in the wilderness. And now their children, and in some cases, probably their grandchildren are now being raised up after them to inherit the promised land. Um, that, that was of course promised to them and God didn't go back on that promise. They and their offspring still inherited it. Um, but because of their rebellion, they didn't get to see the earthly promised land with their earthly eyes. Uh, and this is, this is simply uh, Moses recounting, you know, look, it took 38 years because of what God said was going to happen. And lo and behold, it happened. And that's why we are where we are and knocking on the door of the promised land, so to speak. Well, I'll tell you what, let's let's take a break now. I think this is a good place to pause. So folks, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we come back, Pastor Mullet and I will keep on going through Deuteronomy chapter two. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Vu. With me today, it's the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Don't forget that you can reach out at PastorBoo at gmail.com, on Facebook, or by phone, 800-730-2727. All right, brother, we just sort of finished up with verse 15. For indeed, the hand of Yahweh was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. We see God is the actor here, even and against these uh, very terrifying enemies. Um, anything else before we move into the next section? Well, I think the way that you just summarized it, right, seeing God as the actor, that's going to be important, especially as we move on to maybe the defeat of King uh, Sihon here in a few more verses, um, because while this does recount these next, you know, the second half of the chapter, most certainly recounts things and events that we've already heard about in Numbers. We do get more details now in Moses' retelling of the event that kind of help us unpack a little bit more what's going on. Let's pick up with 16 then. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, Yahweh said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Parenthetically, it is also counted as land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. But Yahweh destroyed them from before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avavim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. In parentheses, rise up, set out on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples whom you are under, uh, who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. There we go. Go ahead, so brother. This Why don't is, we go through that? Yeah. Sure, sure. This is a great, another great passage full of names. Those parentheticals are just so much fun because we haven't heard of most of them. Um, but as we said before the break, we're getting ready to cross into the kingdom of Moab. Uh, and again, Moab is one of the uh, sons of one of Lot's daughters. Um, so these are offspring of Lot and relatives of Abraham uh, by virtue of that. And, and again, we do see pass through, but now also we're approaching the land of the Ammonites, which is the next one further north of the Moabites. So we're getting now toward the north end of the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea and getting closer and closer now to entering into uh, Canaan proper. One of the things you can do through this whole thing, if you're able to... Um, if you're able to access maps, and there are lots of good Bible maps, uh, even online, um, that you can, you can, it's pretty remarkable to see just how well the boundaries line up 
with what God originally said all the way back in Genesis and what he says again in Deuteronomy and in Joshua and so on. I mean, all of those, it is, it is exactly the way that God says it's going to happen. Uh, and, and we have that displayed for us even in human history that God continues to maintain those promises. Um, but when we get to then, like, uh, like Moab, you're also not going to receive the land of uh, Ammon or the, the land of the Ammonites as a possession either. Why? Because he is also offspring of Lot, uh, also one of the sons of Lot or grandsons of Lot. Um, and then the parenthetical. And this is where I think we, we really begin to see that Moses is doing something a little more homiletical or artistic, um, that it is also counted as a land of the Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there. And now, now we begin to wonder were the Rephaim historically a people associated with a particular place, or maybe were they people associated with a particular non, uh, non-believing religion, that there was some kind of religion attached to this? Um, and this is less about they're from a particular place, because now look at the, this, the great swath of land that is attributed to the Rephaim. And it makes me wonder then if it's less about maybe a nationality per se, and much more about a way of life or a religion. The Ammonites called them Zamzumim, which is a Hebrew word meaning um, uh, people who murmur, uh, which, I mean, immediately brings to my mind everything that we know about the Rephaim and interacting with the spirits of the dead, that murmuring sounds like incantations and spell casting and those sorts of, of kind of occult practices. Um, uh, again, a people great and many, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. And again, the actor here is the Lord. Yahweh destroyed them before the Ammonites and they, the Ammonites dispossessed them and settled in their place as he, Yahweh, did for the people of Esau when he destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed and so on. Uh, and we see this again listed again and again and again. So now in verse 24, rise up and go because you've seen this happen to the Moabites and to the Edomites and to the Ammonites that God has raised them up and indeed cut down whoever was in front of them so that they can have their inheritance. He's going to do the same thing for you. I have given into your hand, Sion, the Amorite, the king of Heshbon and his land. So begin to take possession because I, Yahweh, have given him into your hand, right? And again, we see time and time again with the language that's chosen here very intentionally to show that God is the one who's acting for the victory and for the deliverance of his people. And I think verse 25 really sets the stage for what's going to come next. This day, I will begin to put dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, everybody, right? And we see that carry through into the book of Joshua when they begin their conquest of the land of Canaan, that you know, the Israelites as a small army, I mean, even the battle at Jericho is a fine example of this, that it's a small group of people and not known necessarily for any great military prowess. And yet coming up against so many nations with these great mighty armies, uh, God delivers the victory. It's God who acts, not according to man's standards of strength or power, uh, but according to God's promises. So we can see how this, you know, fits into salvation history. We can see how this is God working through uh, his might to save his people and to give them the land he promised. Um, in terms of the whiffum factor, though, what's in it for me? How, how might we apply the, what we're learning here 
to our lives today before we get into the defeat of King Sihon? Sure. Um, you know, in, in, uh, that just, that just brought to mind uh, in Bible class here at Prince of Peace on Sunday mornings, we're taking kind of a, a 10,000 foot survey of the apocryphal books. Um, and we just did Judith. And one of the things that we see in Judith, it's, it's not in the scriptures proper. Uh, it's pretty clearly written to be sort of a religious fiction, um, but only fictional insofar as the way characters and places are used. The story of God's deliverance is still very much in play and proclaimed very clearly. But one of the things that's done kind of artistically in the book of Judith is that the author, whoever it was, takes all these different place names, all these different kings and princes and military generals and compiles them into a single army so that the reader, who is hopefully somewhat acquainted with the history of Israel, can say the military victory that is gained in the book of Judith, God working and winning for his people, is not just over one opposing army in one time at one place, but is in fact over all enemies of God's people, over every enemy of God's people across time and space. Um, that, and, and I think we see that here as well, that, you know, is the victory over the Amorites for us as Christians today? Well, historically, no. We, we in the United States have never interacted with the Amorites, so to speak. And yet, that victory is for us in the sense that not only is that how God preserved his chosen people of old, from whom comes the Messiah, from whom by faith come all of us, um, but also then as we look back through history, we see time and time again the fulfillment of God's promises that he does defeat every single enemy, no matter where or when. Uh, it you know we come up against it. Uh, we might remember the way that uh, Luther in the Catechism talks about kind of that threefold enemy of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Um, that we as Christians face much opposition, but God is with us. He wins the victory for us. There's great comfort for us knowing that through human history, God has defeated every enemy that stood in the way of his chosen people. And so for us by faith as members of Israel, by faith in God's promise, he wins every victory for us. Now it might not be here in time, but we have every confidence that we inherit the victory thereafter in eternity. Let's keep on going then with verse 26. <clears throat> So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road, and I will turn aside neither to the right nor the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that Yahweh our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for Yahweh your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And Yahweh said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And Yahweh our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. 
We left no survivors, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Arer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. Yahweh our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon did you not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever Yahweh our God had forbidden us. So it's interesting that they send words of peace, even though they know they're going in to take control. But we see then here how God hardens his heart, which is always a theological wrestling match for us. Take us through this. Sure. And that that is precisely the detail that we don't get back in numbers. So the parallel here um, to this defeat of King Sion, uh, King of Heshbon, is in Numbers chapter 21. And so here we have a retelling of that very specific battle. Um, we're going to put this on the map. Now we've kind of come to the north end of the Dead Sea, or what is now the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea in the Bible, and kind of turned the corner just a little bit toward the Jordan River. Um, and there's kind of a narrow little stretch of land that extends almost straight north and south from the north end of the Dead Sea. And that's what we're that's what we're dealing with here, this little area of the Amorites, um, when it says we're not expanding into the Ammonite land, which is in that very last verse, um, that is the part even a little bit further east, and they didn't go quite that far east. But anyway, uh, so that's that on a map. We're dealing with kind of a, by comparison to the kingdom of Edom, for example, a small piece of land, um, but kind of foreshadowing in many ways, kind of getting them ready for the promised land of Canaan and the conquest that they have there under the leadership of Joshua uh, in the book of Joshua. But they're they're trying to go peacefully. And I think I think that kind of pictures for us not only hopefully, I think that, you know, if you can come to peaceful arrangements, that's the way to do it. Um, that that is kind of to be preferred. The Israelites know what they're coming up against back in Numbers 21, when they're about to go into this area and defeat this king. I think they know what's coming. And I think at the same time, they want to avoid it if they can help it. Uh, and here, however, we get this detail. Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him for the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, hardened his spirit. That there is a hardening of Sion's heart, and that is why they don't let them pass through. That's a detail we don't get back in Numbers 21. It's just, and we weren't allowed to pass through, so we came up against them in battle and defeated them. Um, here, we get the reason God hardened his spirit or hardened his heart, made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day, right? That at the defeat of the Amorites, they, the Amorites as a nation don't come back from this. Um, so what, what we see here is again, God's action. God is the one who hands them over. God's the one who gives the victory to his chosen people, Israel, and so on. So with the hardening of heart, as you mentioned, this is kind of a theological wrestling match for us a little bit is what exactly does it mean? Hardening of heart. And I think if you'll allow me, I've got enough time to take a couple minutes and kind of unpack this a little bit more because it is it is an important concept, I think, um, that usually when we think hardening of heart, we think back to Pharaoh during the 10 plagues in Egypt. And we're thinking about uh, continual rebellion and the language there 
in the 10 plagues, I think is very instructive for us in kind of unpacking what it means that God hardened his heart. When we look at the 10 plagues and you kind of read through them piece by piece, at the beginning, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. And then Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. And I don't off the top of my head remember if it's between the third and fourth plague or the fourth and fifth plague that the language shifts. And it's no longer Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but it has shifted to God hardened Pharaoh's heart. With this, as we kind of let scripture interpret scripture and how important it is to when we're coming up against a difficult teaching to try to find all the places in the Bible where God speaks to us about this topic. The other place we might go is, uh, as an example, Matthew chapter 12, when Jesus is speaking about the sin against the Holy Spirit, uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, uh, and of course, in the letters of Paul, the rejection of the faith and things like that. I think often we worry that we've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit and that we might never be forgiven for that uh, and I've had a small handful of folks come to me in my time as a pastor and say, I'm worried that I did this. And I always tell them, if you're worried about it, you haven't done it. Because right. if you had actually done it, you probably wouldn't be worried about it. And it's so important to find in those places where Paul talks about it, the, the original of the Greek makes it abundantly clear that this is repeated, ongoing action, just continuous, persistent rebellion against God. Pharaoh did that for the first however many plagues, and God finally said, have it your way then. So it is likewise for Sion. We don't get all of that spelled out for us, but we can see then particularly in that the Amorites are devoted entirely to destruction, that their entire nation and the people in it are completely wiped out, that their sin had reached that point. God had given them by this time many opportunities for repentance, many opportunities to turn back and to stop hardening their own hearts. We've reached a point now with the arrival of the Israelites, according to God's wisdom and timing, that God finally says, have it your way then, and they are devoted to destruction. So we as Christians don't need to be afraid, I don't think, of committing that sin or of hardening our own hearts because God always gives opportunities for repentance and forgiveness. And yet to see these things as a warning to us as Christians that it is possible to turn away. It takes repeated, consistent, and persistent rebellion, but it, it can happen. So we're on guard about that. So we continue to receive God's gifts and word and sacraments. We continue to pray for protection from these things because it can happen. So that's what's going on here, kind of behind the scenes, that God has given the Amorites their opportunities. And he finally says, uh, not unlike well, the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter one about giving them over to their desires. There is a point when God says, have it your way then after many, many opportunities. We don't get a number in the scriptures to know exactly how many chances everybody gets. And I imagine that it's probably less about a specific number of chances and more about God's wisdom and grace and providence as we've spoken about. And that's just something that the scriptures don't reveal to us. Um, but to take heart for us as Christians uh, and, and to take comfort in the gifts of repentance and forgiveness and so also to use that as an opportunity to encourage us and our neighbors uh, to repent and so receive forgiveness um, while, while we are still here, that we might with them inherit the promised land. Uh, 
Um, so that's all of that behind the scenes here of the Lord acting on Israel's behalf of giving things into their hands as he has promised to do. And now bringing them with the conquering of the Amorites here, uh, bringing them all the way to the banks of the Jordan. This is kind of the last, uh, kind of one of the last steps here, uh, geographically speaking, as we're getting closer and closer to the Jordan River, where they're finally going to cross uh, under the leadership of Joshua. When we talk about uh, when we study Joshua, we ran into this issue, and it's worth bringing up again. Um, you know, devoting everything to destruction. You know, verse thirty-four, and we captured all his cities, and at that time devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. Right. So for those for those who maybe this is the first time they're hearing us talk about this, how do we help them wrestle with, you know, this compared to our modern sensibilities? You know, men, women, and children. Yeah, this is hard to kind of grapple with. Um, it, I mean, it really is because we, we see this and our God is a God of grace and our God is a God of forgiveness. And we are called upon, right? Not to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay declares the Lord and so many of these things. And, and it, it's tough because when we look at stuff like this, I mean, we kind of have to wrestle with, and I think this is one of those places, frankly, where, it's, it's easier to sympathize with folks who, who almost see a different God operating in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. You know, this is one of those places that it becomes a little bit harder for us, according to human reason and experience, to reconcile those two things and kind of see, well, how is it that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that takes up flesh in the person of Jesus Christ? How can that be? Um, and so I think what... What we can do again, as I as I hinted at a little bit earlier, that we kind of have to zoom out a little bit and get away from this idea of necessarily a one to one correlation between sin and specific punishments from God and, and get even a little bit further out into all have sinned, as Paul says in Romans six, literally everybody. Christians and unbelievers, literally everybody comes up short, left to their own devices. Um, and that that from the very beginning, the punishment for sin is death. The punishment for sin is being cast out, cast out of the garden, cast out of paradise, cast out of the promised land, cast out of heaven, whatever the case may be. That, the, that sin creates a fundamental separation between the human and the divine. That because of our sinfulness, there is now a gap where once there was not. And this is why the reconciling work of Jesus becomes so important in a, I mean, in a cosmic eternal sense that Jesus as divine and human in one person bridges, quite literally bridges the gap that sin creates between the divine and the human. So when we see God working in this case, he's working through the hands of the Israelites to carry out that destruction, right? This is not, and maybe that's where the, maybe that's where the biggest misunderstanding lies, right? That that this is not the Israelites by their own reason or strength or them choosing because we decide that we need to take vengeance on behalf of our God. And so we will destroy the Amorites. No, this is God working in the world through the Israelites using the hands of the Israelites in this case to destroy a nation that was continuing to rebel, that was continuing to sin against one another, against neighboring countries and by their unbelief and rebellion against God himself. We see this happen lots of places in the Old Testament. God doesn't always work this way through the hands of the Israelites. Sometimes he works through the hands of the Assyrians. 
Sometimes he works through the hands of the Babylonians, even those evil nations, right? Those unbelieving nations. He continues to work even today. What we talked about, as I mentioned a little earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about God chastening his sons because he loves them, that God uses these various things, these various groups of people to work that chastening on various nations and groups of people to bring them to repentance. That's why we preach the law. And that's why we follow it with the gospel. We inspire folks to repentance so that they can receive forgiveness. You know, speaking the word of forgiveness doesn't do anybody any good if they don't believe they have something to be forgiven of. Jesus' death on the cross to pay for the sins of all mankind, it doesn't make any sense unless we acknowledge that we have sins as mankind that need to be forgiven. Uh, And so it, it has to be both and. And so it is here as well that God uses these human means, be it nations or individuals, as we see throughout the Old Testament, to bring people to repentance, to call people unto the promised or the chosen race of Israel. You know, and as it is with with the Exodus from Egypt, you know, there's this amazing little line as they're leaving Israel in Exodus. um, I think it's in Exodus 14. There's this mixed multitude that reminds us that it wasn't just Israelites that left Egypt that day. They took Egyptians with them too. Because God's salvation does not care about who your dad is or which group of people you're born into. He cares about faith in the promises, faith that he himself bestows for salvation. And so it is here as the people of Israel move through. And when it says devoted to destruction, every city, men, women, and children, that doesn't necessarily mean, I know the plainest reading is that, it doesn't necessarily mean that every single person died, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that. What it means is, and on a maybe on a slightly higher level here, is that the Amorites as a people ceased to exist. It could be because some of them became Israelites by faith. So as it is for us, hmm. right? That's and that's, and I think that's an important promise for us to remember too. I don't know anyone actually. Um, I've met a handful in my lifetime who are, who are, Jewish or Israelite by birth. I am willing to bet that the vast majority, if not the entirety of most of our congregations are Gentiles by birth, by which I simply mean not by blood related to Abraham, right? Most of us aren't. And yet, right, Paul does this in Romans, uh, where there's this odd little turn, and we kind of arrive at this conclusion that in God's kingdom, there's no such thing as a Gentile. Because he doesn't care at the end of the day where you're born. Anybody, literally anybody, can become an Israelite by faith. An Israelite then through the Old Testament, and you gotta you gotta kind of hear it on two levels. It is historically an actual group of people on an actual piece of land. And even today, it is an actual group of people on an actual piece of land. But Israel as a people means something so much better than that. Israel as a people means anyone and everyone who believes in God and his promises. And for us today, of course, we can name that promise, namely Jesus Christ. And so all of us, members of Israel by faith, and so it is here that God continues to work in and through his people as he does in and through his people even today. Not that we would go around and conquer and destroy, right? God doesn't seem to operate that way anymore. We tried that with the Crusades. 
Um, and you know, that was probably not, not the greatest move on the part of the Christian church. Um, that might be for another podcast another time, but, but what do we <laughs> see in all these places, right? That through earthly means, through people, through pastors, through Christians, even sometimes through unbelievers, God works in his world, which he has made to bring people to repentance and forgiveness. And so to bring them into heavenly Israel, the fellowship of all believers in Jesus Christ. I think that's a great place to end the program today. Thanks for carrying most of the conversation, brother. I'm a little under the weather, so you probably noticed I wasn't as talkative as normal, but I was so grateful to have the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Always great to have you on. You're so well prepared. Love it. Thank you, brother. Thanks very much, Pastor Boo. Hope you feel better soon. Oh, yes. Thank you. Hey, folks, next time it's going to be the Reverend Matthew Worm. That's tomorrow, and we're going to pick up Deuteronomy chapter 3. And now he continues Moses' retrospective on Israel's journey to the promised land, but he focuses on their encounters and victories over the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, as we got into today. And it details the allocation of the conquered lands to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, while also highlighting Moses's, uh, let's say, personal disappointment at being forbidden by God to enter the promised land. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. 